0: This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, episode 114. For all you World War II history buffs out there, get ready because this week, it's all about the pivotal naval battle that turned the tide in the Pacific in June 1942. You know there is a Midway Airport in Chicago. You've heard us talk about the USS Midway Museum here on the show. Well, today, it's all about the Battle of Midway with our first repeat guest who knows a thing or two about it because he wrote a book on it. Here we go. Wrap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I am your host, Jello, and this is episode 114. Now, if you're listening to this episode on release day, June 4th, 2021, then two things are true. Probably a lot more than just two, but yeah, bear with me. Anyway, I am in my last day of refresher training uh, with my airline following not flying since last October. And also today is the 79th anniversary of the World War II Battle of Midway. Now, I don't know about you, but you know, I've heard of the Battle of Midway. I could probably find the island on a map. I know there's an airport in Chicago named after it, but Really? What's the big deal? What, why all the fuss? What is so notorious about the Battle of Midway and why did it change naval aviation forever? Well, that's what we're talking about today on this episode. And this episode is unlike any other because for the first time, we are welcoming back our first repeat guest. Now we've had guests come back as co-hosts, but in this case, we've got a second time guest. You remember retired United States Navy Captain Kevin Miller from episode 20 after the cockpit. Poser, welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, Jello. Thanks. Great to be with you again.
0: For sure. Well, what's new with you? I mean, we've seen you on, I think you helped us with a Facebook live session, or we've done some other stuff, but what's new just with you?
1: You know, I'm researching another Flip Wilson book. And right. I'll start writing that later this year. It's going uh, to promote everybody, and we'll, uh, we'll start out in the Eastern Med, and we'll cause trouble and go from there.
0: <laughs> well, that sounds good. All right. Well, it's good to get an update on you and uh you're still down there in the Panhandle of Florida, I presume?
1: Yep, right here in all the right. cradle of naval aviation.
0: Fantastic. All right. Well, we learned all about you last time, so this episode is going to be unlike any other as we said because we don't have to ask where you're from and what you did in the Navy and all that. The listener can find that on episode 20 and we don't have to ask you about your call sign again. Um but we do have our usual format we'd like to follow. We have some listener questions. We'll hold those until we talk about the battle. And then a couple just quick announcements. So you and I have kept pretty busy over the last year and some change adapting your book. Like you said, Flip Wilson, it's back. He started off in Raven 1 is where we met him. And we've been adapting that series to DCS. So remind us where we've been and what we're working on now.
1: Yes, Raven 1 Dominant Fury and and this is a a prequel DCS campaign if you will. Flip is uh is now a junior department head uh, before his his uh, famous or infamous uh, Raven 1 deployment in Hormuz. And uh War Valley Forge, uh, again the Eastern Med, and uh lots of new uh, uh missions that we are building in conjunction with the BVR team, of course, which is Baltic Dragon and and RG. Uh In the past couple of years and couple of months, DCS has put out a lot of new updates, new updates for Super Carrier and the aircraft. So we're going to uh, leverage those and uh, put together a a pretty fun game. It's been it has been fun developing. it.
0: Yes. And it's been fun watching you on Twitter. I know you've been engaging a lot with the DCS community. They have all very well received, I would say, the Raven one that we put out in 2020, I guess it was. Yes. And so it's uh, it's been a lot of fun working on this one with you. I know we've spent a lot of hours brainstorming different missions. We're, and... we're
1: getting it right.
0: Yeah. And the fun part, I think, is, well, wait a minute. If Flip does this in the prequel, maybe that would have changed the canon, right, or the universe of later. So he can't necessarily have ejected. Hope we're not giving away too many secrets here. Because an ejection is a big deal. Uh, and he can't really shoot down aircraft and he can't do a lot of other things, but I think it's still going to be a really, really fun, uh, DCS campaign. And we're, uh, moving towards, are we allowed to say when we think this is going to come out?
1: I, I think we are. And, uh, this year, uh, the fall, I, I believe we're, uh, uh, we have another handful of missions to do. They're, they're going to be big ones, uh, using the Syria map that, that, the, the uh, DCS players love it's a terrific map and it's real world. There's there's plenty to do there. So uh, yeah. yeah, it it has been uh, exciting developing this one. All of us have, have learned more about DCS and and how we can make a better mission. So so this one yeah. is is going to uh, raise the bar
0: for sure. And it's always fun when the three of us, like you said, uh, Baltic dragons, part of this, get our heads together and we try to balance the realism that we'd like our campaigns to be known for, but also with enjoyment for the player. So we might take some liberties if I may say with how likely maybe could this be, but if it did happen, this is what the comms might sound like. This is what the tactics would be to within reason, of course. Yeah, And so uh, I think that's some of the credibility that you and I lend to these campaigns. And so we hope for that later in 2021, like you said, and we hope it is well-received and it's been a lot of fun working on it.
1: It sure has. Yes. We, we take a little bit of artistic license, but we keep it real.
0: Okay. All right, Hoser. Well, let's get to the point now, you know, next year it'll be 80 years. And so maybe we can revisit this then. But this is, as I said at the top, the anniversary of the Battle of Midway. And you are, dare I say, an expert on this because you've written a book. So actually, if you don't mind, let's start there. Remind us the name of the book and and a little bit about it, because I think when we met you back on episode 20, I think it was still fairly far off at that
1: point. Yes. And uh, I hadn't even finished the the Raven One trilogy then, but uh, The Silver Waterfall. And the Silver Waterfall is historic fiction about the Battle of Midway. And I wrote it without changing any facts of the battle. I did a lot of research uh here in Pensacola, the National Naval Aviation Museum, primary source documents, fascinating. And uh just a perspective that as a former carrier aviator can bring. So the Silver Waterfall was published last June fourth, coming up okay. on a year. And uh So that's what we're going to talk about today.
0: All right. Well, I will refrain for your benefit, Hoser, um, referring to your book like a certain movie about a ship sinking, uh, which is a factual account with a fictional uh, tale of some lovers. And so I won't do that anymore because it's always awkward. But the point being is you took the factual events of the Battle of Midway, which we'll dive into here in a moment, and you applied what the crews might have been thinking what they might have said you did real research on the era and you just tried to give us something so instead of reading about the facts we could live it with the cruise is that essentially yes
1: that? and uh modeled this after uh, uh michael shara's outstanding the killer angels about the battle of gettysburg and so through that book he brought that battle alive it was adapted into the movie that everyone has probably seen gettysburg with uh with, with martin sheehan as as robert e lee uh Jeff Daniels is Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Uh what actually happened at Midway does not need any embellishment. And just talking about what what the the real men who fought it uh went through and and try to put some emotion and feeling as to, to what they were experiencing.
0: Yeah. Well I don't know if you can see it there. Uh it's right on the end of my bookshelf behind yes. me. And I enjoyed it very much. And so all right. Well let's let's jump into it. Now first off where is Midway Island? And what was the island's significance in early 1942?
1: Midway is in the middle of the largest geographic feature on Earth, the Pacific Ocean. It's about 1,100 miles northwest of Hawaii, which itself is probably the most isolated place on Earth. Midway uh, before the war was a refueling stop for the Pan Am Clipper, But uh, as war clouds gathered in the Pacific, it was it was a fortified base. In early 1942, uh, after the fall of Wake, Midway was our westernmost outpost in the Pacific.
0: Okay. Have you ever been there?
1: No, never been there.
0: Oh, me neither. How about you? I flew. No, I've not. I flew by it. Um, I wouldn't say recently. It's been a year, but I was on my airline uh, capacity flying from Hawaii to somewhere in Japan. I forget suddenly, and we went very near it. And I tried to take a picture, and of course, it was very blurry.
1: Well, I, I was an Atlantic Fleet sailor, so.
0: Okay. So can you describe the Imperial Japan's Pacific conquests up until June 1942? And I think a lot of listeners are probably familiar with December 7th, 1941.
1: Yes. Well, Yamamoto said, you know, he would run wild for six months. And after that, he had no guarantee. And so he did run wild. And the Japanese, uh, in short order, conquered the Philippines. Uh, They got the uh, the Dutch East Indies, uh, the vital oil supplies in Borneo they uh, attacked singapore they sunk the royal navy battleships repulse and prince of wales they attacked darwin in northern australia and you know kept them out of the out of the fight they went into the indian ocean where the royal navy had a carrier task force sank the carrier hermes attacked the royal navy base at trincomalee uh so they had uncontested command of the western pacific ocean and into the indian ocean
0: now, as we sit here in 2021, obviously, we have the benefit of knowing history and how it ends up. But I have to think, come, you know, January, February 1942, for the Allies, it must have seemed very bleak in the Pacific.
1: It absolutely was. However, we did attack and, uh, in, in February of 1942. And this is the action with, uh, with Butch O'Hare, you know, saving Lexington off of Bougainville. I mean, you know, well into the Western Pacific. United States was attacking Japanese outposts in the Marshalls of Carolines, And these were pinprick attacks. They they weren't really militarily significant. You know, the Japanese kind of ignored them. Uh, But Yamamoto knew in the back of his mind that because the carriers were not affected at all on December 7th, he had to eventually deal with them. Mm. Then in April of 1942, the Doolittle Raid, and that was a game changer for japan i mean you know the empire the homeland was attacked the and the emperor was was put at risk and so japan right. had to then you know move resources to defend the home islands which they never thought would, would be attacked certainly not in april of 1942.
0: Well, okay so was the attack on midway a surprise and i think for those who follow even a little bit of history this is kind of a loaded question. I had, this is one thing I do know about the Battle of Midway.
1: <laughs> was it a surprise? It uh, it might've been a surprise to the Japanese that morning. It certainly was that morning that the Americans were there, but but no, through through painstaking mathematical calculation over a period of months, um, the guys at Station Hypo and Makalapa Hill had broken most of the Japanese code. And and this is led by the uh, Lieutenant Commander Joseph Roper and Nimitz's intel officer, Lieutenant Commander Edwin Layton. And so together they had pieced these little snippets of, of radiocom. They kind of get a bearing on where they are, and they could, they could even tell which types of ships were, uh, were, were, were transmitting Morse code is what we're talking about. And they brought this information to Admiral Nimitz and said, they're going to strike at Midway. So this was transmitted to Washington. And Washington, which always has the answer, no, 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 they're going to strike at Johnston Island and so to prove to washington that they were going to strike at midway this is the famous ruse about midway's uh, desalinization plant and so they in, in the clear they said hey our, our our plants on the fritz and and the japanese picked that up and so so again nimitz's team Roquefort and Leighton, they knew they were going the japanese were going to midway and that ruse was to prove to washington that they were the movie midway that came out two years ago in 2019 yeah. did a very good job of talking about that that effort and and the use of of uh radio intelligence that that was very well done in the movie
0: that part of it yeah what was your if i may ask you what was your overall thought of that movie
1: I, it's uh good another and and i i wrote a review actually it's in my blog kevinmillerauthor.com but um it's good that Hollywood made a movie about that battle, about a historic event like that. I mean, we get a lot of, you know, what Hollywood feeds us. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, but the the, the CGI, uh, it was just so much it distracted. Uh, the The reputations of actual men who were there were impugned. There's, uh, you know, here's Roquefort drinking on the job. Here's a drunken Richard Best yelling at Nimitz. Uh, Spruance. And, and McCluskey don't look too strong. So that, that was a disappointment, but, but again, you know, people like us can go bring our families and friends to the movie and then we can, we can be the experts and, and talk about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have a very similar, I would say a uh, reaction to it. I, at the very beginning, there was a, maybe you know the name of the officer at, at uh, Pearl Harbor who was yelling at one of his sailors. And then a moment later he's killed and there's this sad, Funeral and we're all supposed to feel bad for him. We're like, no, that guy was a jerk. So I I felt they didn't quite develop the characters well enough. And I had a difficult time keeping track of who was who, even though I think they tried very hard to do that. And then at the end, they showed us the real pictures and summary of them. But certainly a lot of names, anyone even mildly interested in war history or naval aviation will recognize McCluskey. We have an award given out to fighter squadrons every year for him. Um, Nimitz, of course. And so many others, and so, yeah, I'm with you. I'm I'm glad they tried, but I I felt it missed the mark a little bit. I was a little bit disappointed. But at any rate, I thought your book was much more enjoyable. But books versus movies, not to go on a too big a tangent, you can always read better it what the folks are thinking in a book than you can try to imagine what Hollywood is telling you through through the scenes. So, all right, getting back to it, so the Battle of Midway was different, right? I mean, it was significant compared to that point in history.
1: Yes. Uh, One month before at Coral Sea, American carriers had met and thwarted the Japanese advance uh, to cut off the sea lines communication to Australia. They were going to attack and take Port Moresby in New Guinea, and then Australia would really be in trouble. And so uh, we sent two carriers, Lexington and Yorktown. On the first day, they found and sank the Japanese uh, light carrier, Shoho. But then the next day, the Japanese got through and uh and and fatally damaged lexington we did some damage though on two of their pearl harbor carriers this is shokaku and zoikaku we were able to to pretty much decimate the air wing of one and damage the the other ship so those carriers could not participate one month later at midway uh yorktown was damaged and uh th- this is the famous story that she made her way back to pearl harbor you know trailing a, a slick of oil and uh in, in dry dock and they said admiral nimitz it's going to take us months to turn her around for combat and he said gentlemen i need this ship in three days <laughs> and and they made it happen where the japanese didn't and and had they that that uh as we'll discuss i'm sure that could have carried the day for them
0: yeah so Midway was that, uh, and again, this is where my naval history is not as sharp. Is this is this the one credited as the first naval battle where the opposing ships didn't see Coral each other? Coral Sea. I'm sorry, a...
1: I didn't answer you. Coral Sea was the first battle in history okay. where opposing ships did not see each other. Um, so uh, so just a, a month later, we're we're off Midway. So the same the same setup. Our, our ships, although there are exceptions, we had the submarine Nautilus that got in among the Japanese screen and. Of course, the Japanese had a submarine that dealt with Yorktown later in the battle. We're talking ranges of 150 to 200 miles between uh, what we would call uh, strike groups, task forces.
0: And so prior to that, if I may simplify naval warfare, especially anyone who's seen any of the Pirates of the Caribbean type shows, right? You pull two ships up next to each other, you slug it out and one ends up victorious. Now, the ships uh, leading up to Coral Sea and, and then Midway are more of a, an extension of the weapon system to launch the aircraft. Is that a fair summary?
1: Yes. Okay. Uh, and so the battleship. Now, the battleship had uh, uh, was still thought of as the primary naval weapon, even after Pearl Harbor, hmm. and even by the Japanese, who had taught the world a lesson that the battleship was was not the, the primary naval uh, uh, combatant battleship guns, big guns. We're talking 14 inch, 16 inch guns, 15, 20 miles. Uh, obviously an airplane, a little aluminum airplane can uh, pack a, a thousand pound weapon, can pack a 2000 pound torpedo and do uh severe damage. And they'll swarm around those ships. And, and obviously the Japanese had sunk the Royal Navy battleships earlier in, in the war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this was a, uh, but the Japanese still were wedded to the battleship being the, the, the primary decider of naval combat. And here's how they did it. They planned that their aircraft carriers would attack Midway on June 4th. The next day, they would land on Midway and take it. And that would prompt the Americans to come out and fight. They didn't think the Americans would fight. They thought the Americans were inept, cowardly, and they weren't watching. Because, again, it, in February 1942, we're, we're in their backyard with, with Butch O'Hare. All through the early months, we're in the, the Marshalls and Carolines, the Doolittle Raid, Coral Sea. We absolutely brought the fight to them in uh, early in the war, and but they still didn't pick that up.
0: So if this was mainly a battle between aircraft, how did the aircraft stack against each other? Who had the advantage?
1: Well, uh, the United States, as it always does, uh, went to war with what it had.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, what we had in, in 1941 was the Wildcat fighter. And the Wildcat was a, a great little airplane, um, but it was not as great as the Japanese A6M Zero fighter, which could turn it out, climb it. Um, it had much more range, significantly more range than, than a Wildcat. Uh, what The Zero could not uh, you know, dive as well as the Wildcat. You get that Beer barrel fuselage going downhill and the zero couldn't hang. But in every other regime, it, it did quite well. The uh, torpedo bombers, the Japanese had the, the Nakajima B 5N, uh, what we know as the Kate, and, and that designation uh, came later in the war, the, the Kate and, and the Val. The uh, 200 knots, very effective airplane, a great torpedo bomber. Pearl Harbor, as we all saw, high level bomber, very capable airplane. What we had was the five-year-old TBD Devastator, with uh, carrying a two-thousand-pound torpedo. But the cruising speed of a Devastator was only one hundred and ten knots. Oof. And so you think about that, you know, you have, you know, you and I could not have landed a Hornet that slow, you know, back <laughs> in the day, and uh, and that was their their cruising speed. And they had to slow to eighty knots at eighty feet at about eight hundred yards to drop that thing. So imagine, you know, chasing down a ship and and you might have, you know, eighty knots of closure on. it. It's going to just take forever, and you're just getting beat up. You've got a, you've got a radio man gunner behind you to, 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 uh, to do the best that, that he can, and so, not good. Now, but we did have one secret weapon, maybe not secret. But uh, the SBD Dauntless dive bomber was probably the finest dive bomber in the world at the time. It was much better than the, the Japanese Val with, with fixed landing gear. Uh, you know, the, the German Stuka, even then, the, but they didn't fly it like the Americans did. The Dauntless was designed to roll into a 90 degree dive and put out dive brakes first, roll into a 90 degree dive, and then the pilot is looking through a a uh, a tube with a crosshairs and he's tracking the target that, that's going through the water imagine doing that and, and there's no uh, there's no shoulder harness you kind of lighten your seat you got a seat belt that's it your canopy is open you're in in low blower for your engine and as you're as you're diving on this target at 240 knots your your left hand is working the trim just like we used to do in flight school to make sure that we're in balanced flight the radio and gunner would swivel around and call out altitudes. So he would face forward, stow the gun and face forward. And inside 4,000 feet, he'd call every hundred feet. So 39, 38, 37, 36, all the way down to about 2,000 feet. And that's where the pilot would pickle. And on the older models that the Marines flew from Midway, you would reach down by your left foot and yank up on a handle that would release the weapon. And so at that point, you would pull on the pole, and I've, I've read accounts, you know, two hands and just, just you know, unaided nine, 10 Gs, oomph, and pull out right above the water. The gunner would swivel around, get the gun out and start fighting. Isn't that amazing? That's and, and incredible. That, yes. And, and, that, and, that's, and that's what those guys did. And, and so you think later in the war, you know, we experienced a Japanese kamikaze weapon. So that was the same thing, except those last two seconds that the human guidance system and a kamikaze would fly right into the target. Mm. So it was an absolutely precision weapon that the United States had. And, and the American carrier dive bomber crews knew how to use it.
0: Yeah. Well, in your book, Silver Waterfall, the, you, you spend some time with the aviators on the USS Hornet. Uh, but they didn't really find glory on the morning of June 4th. So why didn't they? What what happened with them finding the Japanese? And we have a listener question, by the way, to this effect a little bit later.
1: Okay. Hornet was a, a new ship. It had been commissioned in October in Norfolk. And uh, so the war started and they went through the Panama Canal and up and they went to San Francisco, put on the Doolittle Raiders in San Francisco. And there's not much time to train. I mean, this is a new air wing, new ship. You got to work the bugs out, as we know. They deliver the Doolittle Raiders, come back, and they had a very short training period. So this was their first time. I mean, this is the World Series and really a a unproven ship air wing team. So there was difficulty getting those guys uh, airborne that morning. There was a lot of drama on the bridge about where the fighters should be and uh we'll we'll talk about that later i'm sure but uh the, the americans were given a heading of 240 238 you know basically southwest okay. and expected to be 150 miles or so from from where we launched that morning the enterprise aircraft they they flew the same heading and and enterprise and hornet were together but the air wings took off at and and headed out at different times Wade McCluskey famously, as we know, he got to the end of his leg and they weren't there. And he decided to turn right to the northwest and eventually north and found them. Ring, and there was a lot of of, uh, questionable behavior going on in in Air Group 8, uh, got to the end and turned south toward Midway, thinking maybe that's where the Japanese went
0: so the uh fellas mccluskey turning north found them and uh ring turning south did not is that uh, it and
1: and, there, and it gets worse um okay the way that the hornet launched this and this is you know this was custom you launch the fighters first and then you because they got to defend everyone and then you launch the dive bombers so they have a shorter roll then the torpedo planes because they're carrying those big torpedoes and that's a much longer flight deck role. That that makes sense so So you launch the fighters and dive bombers and you have to bring up the torpedo planes from, from the hangar bay. And that takes time. You got to spot them and warm them up. It takes time. So the guys are circling overhead and chewing up gas, Mm. but they all did leave Hornet at the same time. There's photographic evidence of, of BT eight led by Walter. And above them is the dive bombers led by the group commander Ray. Halfway there, the fighters ran out of gas and turned around and they couldn't find Hornet and they all ditched so oh all my. all the escort fighters were lost and, and a couple of the pilots were never found um the dive bombers uh the bombing squadron bombing 8 carrying the big 1000 pounders they said, we can't do this so their ceo took them to midway and they landed at midway and refueled and came back the scouting squadron said we're out of gas and they turned around on their own and and they and they went back to hornets still with their 500 pound bombs on their on their racks just you know, we would, we would call this a goat rope and, <laughs> yeah, and it didn't and start it, well, it not, not at all. And it was just a disaster for Hornet that morning. Okay. And then there's VT eight. So VT eight halfway through, and this is Waldron and ring, and they were arguing that morning and, and ring said, okay, look, they are, they're heading two four zero. That's what we've been assigned. And Walter said, no, that's wrong. They're, they're farther North than that. They're going to, this is where they're going to launch. There's no reason they would close midway. They would, they would move away. No, two, four, zero. And Rink said, I'm telling you, sir. You know, two five zero, two five, five. Nope. Okay. Well, Rink said, uh, Waldron said, Can I have a couple of fighters? No. Can I have one fighter? No. Can I have one fighter and one of my guys will fly it? And the answer is no. And and Captain Mister Mark Mitchell, the legend of uh of, of Leyte golf is is the captain of Hornet now. And and it's his air wing, and and he decides how they're employed in those days. So mm. so Waldron, you know, didn't get what he needed. Going the wrong heading. He's flying these old airplanes that don't have a lot of range. I mean, we got to get right to him. So halfway through, John Waldron took his squadron and left. Can you imagine? Just just you know, taking your squadron and just leaving the the air wing formation and going off on your own.
0: He was he that was, convinced he was right.
1: And and he was right. And George Gay, in, in his account, said that he, he took the squadron to the Japanese as if he had a string tied to them. And, and, of course, to their death, the Japanese were there waiting for him with 40 zeros.
0: Oh, wow. Oh, all right. So we're getting into this, but I want to go back to the dive bombers and your book. The, the cover of the Silver Waterfall is really striking. And I know that expression shows up in the book. What is depicted there and and who do we credit for that?
1: Noted aviation artist Wade Myers. And I've seen Wade Myers work and and I was connected to him. So I uh and I knew that I wanted a, a cover, an original cover, an accurate cover to, to match the the accuracy and research in the text. So Wade and I talked, okay, this we're gonna show best Krager and Weber from Bombing Six on on Enterprise and And there had been another goat rope between the enterprise (laughs) dive bombers that morning. Okay, who's attacking what ship, and we we can talk about that. But it it was just a mess. And so Bess took his two wingmen over to Akagi to to save the day. So that is them in in their and the bomb will come off at a seventy degree dive. Um, And you can see that the yoke there that that swings the clear of, of the propeller. Um, And it's, you know, kind of comes off and then it it retracts back there. So you see um, Best and Krager are releasing and Weber, he's waiting to get down to 2000 feet where he releases. You can see in that image, a couple of wisps of AAA. So the the Japanese on Akagi saw them and and fired Uh, Best in his account said he didn't see it, but Crager number two did. And uh, it's the, the sun angle. Um, the, the, What it evokes, very, very pleased with it.
0: Yeah. Hoser, so you've already sort of touched on this, but I mean, this is unlike anything you and I did, even 60 years later, let alone 80 as we are now. Uh, I mean, like not knowing where the fleet is, you know, flying propeller aircraft, running out of fuel, you know, flying at what'd you say, 80 knots to release a, uh, a, torpedo. a, a torpedo? That's basically a sitting duck. I mean, It's incredible what these men went through, and I will deliberately say men because at that time, um, but it doesn't sound like it started real well. Did the page turn on this? I mean, it wasn't just a battle in one day as as well.
1: Yes. Uh, At at, uh, 10 o'clock in the morning on June 4th, uh, no one would give the Americans any chance to win the Battle of Midway. I mean, the guys on Hornet were going the wrong way and Mm. had fallen out. Uh, the guys on Enterprise were lost at the end of their fuel leg. Um, uh, the guys on Yorktown had just launched at only a half strength attack, and the Japanese knew where the Americans were. They had found them uh, finally. You know, gotten an accurate scouting report from from one of their scouts. But but it was Wade McCluskey, and Wade McCluskey had had turned. He had gone an extra fifteen minutes, then he paralleled the Japanese course. They still weren't there. So he he goes north now, which is kind of back toward home a little bit, but just go a little bit further. and And he's got binoculars, and he's looking through the breaks in the clouds. You know, it um, it was clear up there, but you know, on on the surface, it, it it's white. But when you get on on top of a break, you can look down into it and see what's there. And so he sees a ship, a single ship. He thinks it's a light cruiser. It's really the destroyer Arashi that had been prosecuting USS Nautilus that was causing problems for the Japanese an hour earlier. So it's rushing back home to join the rest of the mobile force. McCluskey follows it. And within minutes he sees below him the, the, the mobile force and, and, and uh, changes the history of the world.
0: How many ships are in his field of view at that point? Do you think
1: the, the Japanese had uh, four carriers, two battleships and, and, uh, a dozen destroyers, half a dozen cruisers. So, you wow. know, 20 um, of, of various types, yeah. And and airplanes all over the place. At, now, at the same time, VT-3 from Yorktown, Torpedoes 3, and VB-3 from Yorktown were also attacking from the northeast, and they didn't know that the others were there. So the Yorktown guys get there, and they, they, they start attacking. The torpedo guys get annihilated. This is where Jimmy Thatch, Introduces the thatch weave to uh, to good effect. Just, just tried it in in combat, and the Japanese had never seen anything like it. Um, so bombing three led by Max Leslie, and this is the famous saying: Okay, we got these new electrical armies so let's arm our weapons. And they fall off the airplane halfway there. I mean, can you imagine that? And no. so so he he uh, and so he breaks radio silence. You know, darn it! Probably use a saltier word than that. Uh, you know, don't don't arm your you know arm your weapons manually. You know, two other guys had dropped their weapons too. So Max Lussy rolls in, just you know, guns blazing. That's all he's got. But his wingmen were able to put three bombs into Soryu and just set it ablaze, absolutely. And Soryu lost about three quarters of her crew in the conflagration that that followed. So the yeah. Enterprise guys they they get there, and there is a mix-up: scouting six and bombing six. Thirty airplanes end up rolling on Kaga, the the, the big Japanese carrier. They you know they're, okay, they're separated side by side. There was confusion so this is where best takes his two women oh those those idiots and he, he goes over to uh to, to akagi and and one bomb hit akagi there was a close paint scraper that, the, that that fushida writes about in in his book then one bomb hit amidships, and another bomb hit very close to the stern and probably disabled akagi's rudder but that one bomb going off in the hangar bay and hangar base and Japanese carriers were stacked, one on top of another, full of armed and, and fueled aircraft. That was their policy. They were afraid to do it in the open air on the flight day because of the, the specter of enemy strafers. They just cooked off mm. and the ship was doomed. All of them were doomed.
0: Wow. Uh, yeah, it's so hard. You know, we sit here and you've done your research and we talk about it, but there's no possible way. I don't feel like to really feel and experience what they did. I mean, clearly I'm not saying anything new, but to, to, again, we know the ending also, but to think about the uncertainty, the fear for your life, the wanting to avenge Pearl Harbor, it just, it's it it is. And and
1: in those days and, and, you know, through much of naval aviation, sadly and realistically, pretty dangerous business. And uh, so, you know, here you mm. are, you're in, and here's, you know, young Ensign Clay Fisher, you know, right, right, just got his wings a few months ago, and he's in an SBD with another human being sitting behind him, and he is assigned to search 200 miles by himself, and so, mm. and in an SBD, and it probably take him, uh, you know, an hour and a half to get out there, there's no radios, there's no, there's no you know, all the, the toys that we have hf and yeah SAT. and and the, you know he, he's looking at the surface right. of the sea and kind of estimating wind and 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 drift and, and all that and then you turn around and you find your way back and there's no tack there's there's no marshal controller to to, to vector you home and and they did it and 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 so you know even ensign fisher knew how to do that before you know having to do the real thing in, in battle
0: you said earlier i just want to clarify for our listeners who you might wonder this because I did until I saw that you had specified it in the book. Uh, we have VT squadrons today, but it's nothing like the VT squadron then. Right. So today you might have VT two uh, and that's a training squadron, but back then it was yes, a torpedo correct. squadron.
1: VTs are training today. Yes.
0: Yeah. And we don't have VBs anymore. And then there were a few others, but
1: we don't even have uh, VF anymore.
0: Uh, that is true. That is true. VF went away in what? 2006 I, I so. with the uh, F-14. Dude, six or seven. All right. Hey, can we talk a little more about John Waldron? I mean, complex guy. What, what's the legacy with him?
1: John Waldron, Annapolis graduate. And, uh, you know, came up, you know, through the, the school of hard knocks in naval aviation in, in the 20s and 30s. He's about 40 years old at, at Midway. And uh, okay, so he's commanding Torpedo Squadron 8, which is the Navy's newest torpedo squadron on the Navy's newest ship, but flying the oldest airplanes they had hoped they would get the new Grumman TBF Avenger. But they didn't get it in time to bring it to sea. Now there's, you know, students of the battle know that there were VT-8 Avengers on Midway and, and they they flew into battle that morning from Midway. Five, uh, six aircraft, to five shot down. It's in my novel, but it's also uh, in A Dawn Like Thunder by Robert that their story. But Waldron knew that We've got to get in the first blow. It's crucial. Whoever gets the first blow is going to win this battle. Whatever it takes. Now, now, how did he know this? Now, he had participated, as all the aviators had, in the fleet problems of the 1930s, where they would have, you know, carrier versus carrier. They would have a carrier attack Pearl Harbor, and the Japanese were paying attention too, by the way. Uh, and and I would I would say there's a historical uh, parallel to the past 10 years. I mean, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, the People's Liberation Army Navy was participating, invited to participate in in RIMPAC exercises and no longer. But, uh, you know, in in the early 1930s, the the Americans and Japanese, and and again, this is in the movie Midway, where Leighton is talking to Yamamoto. Uh, They all did exchange tours in each other's countries. But uh, so, so Waldron knew whatever it takes, I'm going to lead my guys here. So he told his guys, on the eve of the battle you know it's going it's going to be tough guys and i think that on the on the first wave i think half of us are going to get shot down then we'll come back and you know we'll we'll, we'll bring out what we can and probably another half on, on the second wave but if we got any left we'll go that night now can you imagine your joe sitting there listening to this and <laughs> i i mean yeah no. you know okay, you know, you're looking around there okay half of my best friends in the world half of us tomorrow the co said and, yeah. and this is where john Waldron wrote his famous letter, you know, just to let you know. I think we're ready. You I know, want us to do our utmost. Go in and get a hit. And and that's that. That that letter is at the National Naval Aviation Museum, and I of course I cite it in my novel. Um, John Waldron took his. He argued with his air wing commander on his air group commander on the radio. Argued on the radio, and he said, "I'm, I'm out of here." And he took his guys away, but he took them right to the Japanese and. And obviously attacked and and the japanese caught them john waldron courageous and determined john waldron insubordinate and reckless Uh, but both are true Hmm.
0: fine line between the two isn't it is is that not why his name is not attached to very much these days you you know again we hear mccluskey we hear of mitcher some of these other names nimitz but and I can't think of anything. Had, had
1: Waldron lived, what what would have happened to him? I mean, you, you know, he he tells his his group commander to to go jump in the lake again. You know, family language for this family podcast here. <laughs> it, it was saltier than that. Um, it, but yeah. there's Waldron Field in Corpus Christi, and uh, and there was oh, there a, okay. a destroyer named for John Waldron, and, and John Waldron, and BT8. You know, here was a Midway. But as the years go by. And 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 I called him a hero, and and has have told his story over the years. But but as more comes out, you know, was was that the best thing to do? A case can be made that uh, you know, okay, Waldron attacked, all lost, but it, it put the Japanese in disarray. There's destroyers that are making smoke and brings the cap down, and then 30 minutes later, VT6 from Enterprise did the same thing, and attacked, and and most of them got shot down, three or four survivors. And then about 20 minutes later is when BT-3 from Yorktown shows up and attacks because they see this commotion on the horizon, see the smoke, they see the AAA, and you can see it on the sharp horizon. Okay, there they are. And then McCluskey and Leslie, the Japanese cap was down low. The, the ships had been turning all day, healing, and and they can't get the the, the launch up. So it, it, absolutely, it was the efforts to sacrifice of those three torpedo squatters. It's not fair that that writers like me yeah. concentrate on on water. And it was also Lem Massey and and uh oh gosh, who who am I who am I missing? Uh, it, it'll come to me in a moment. I'm, I'm ashamed of myself. The other two squatters also went to their their death.
0: While you're thinking of it, I'll I'll confess I never did a tour in Texas so I didn't realize that would you say it, yes. Corpus uh-huh. uh, that field is named after Okay, so I didn't know that. But... It, it
1: just came to me, uh, Lieutenant Commander Gene Lindsay. Yes, and 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 Gene, Gene Lindsay had hurt himself in a crack up a few days earlier, but he somehow was helped into the cockpit and I'm I'm going to fly this one and and and, lo- and lost his life. Oh wow! So you touched
0: on like the radios. Obviously, they didn't have the kind of tools we have these days with datalink and inertial navigation systems, GPS, and all that. So. I mean, the fog of war must have been significant. And I have to think on both sides, because even once some of these forces that you've described, and it's hard for me to keep all the names straight, so bear with me if I don't get it right. I won't even try. But someone finally finds them, and then that produces a beacon, if you will, for the reasons you stated. You see the triple A uh, bursting at altitude and the smoke from the ships. But otherwise, like for the commanders on the ships, they have no idea what's going on until people come back and land and the, debrief them. That's that right, essentially true? The
1: Radios were 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 bad, and and so <laughs> Waldron finds the Japanese and he transmits on the radio. You know, ha, have sighted the enemy, and and he said, you know, Stanhope, Stanhope, ring, Stanhope from Johnny One have sighted the enemy, and then they they drone in, Stanhope, we you know, answer. Ring did not hear that transmission, but other. Aviators and radioman gunners in the Hornet formation, did, but no one piped up and said, "Hey, uh, sir, you know we're hearing Skipper Waldron on the radio. He's he's got something." That didn't happen. And as bad as the American radios were, and wait, here's another one. Uh, this is the uh, the, the famous um, "Come on Down, Jim" transmission, and uh, the, from from the Enterprise of so torpedo bombers. So they find the Japanese. And they want the Enterprise fighters to come down and help them. So they, they make that transmission, but the, the fighter squadron didn't hear it. And, uh, but the Japanese had much worse radios. The Japanese heroes had radios. They ignored them. They didn't use them. What the Japanese did, you're going to be amazed at this. They, they would circle overhead the task force, and screen ships would see an enemy approach. So screen ships would start firing their, their guns in, in that direction. And that would turn the fighter pilot's eyes to that direction. And they would pick up the enemy visually. I mean, that, that was the early warning that, wow. that those guys had. Radar. Radar existed. And radar was used by the Brits in 1940. The Battle of Britain probably saved it. And so mm-hmm. the Japanese knew mm-hmm. about radar, too. But the Americans had actually put it on their carriers like Yorktown. It, it saved it um, you know, later that afternoon. The Japanese had one radar set. Mm-hmm. But it was 600 miles behind them on a battleship that didn't see any action. Uh-huh. If they had radar, they, 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 you know, radar gives you time, obviously, and and uh, yeah. and, and they, they would have seen the threat uh, much earlier. They they could have done something about it.
0: All right, so Hoser, we've painted a fairly bleak picture of day one of the Battle of Midway. Clearly, things turn around. Give us a quick synopsis. Of once the Japanese fleet is discovered, what do the rest of that first day look like in the next um, couple of days?
1: The uh, that afternoon, uh, aircraft from Yorktown, which had been uh, attacked and torpedoed by by the Japanese carrier Hiryu, they found the Japanese carrier Hiryu. So Enterprise and Hornet uh, cobbled together what they had because they had terrible losses, mostly due to fuel starvation, but obviously they had lost airplanes to. To, uh, to enemy fire, so they put together what they could with a lot of Yorktown survivors over on Enterprise, and they launched uh, about 150 miles away, pretty close, not bad, they didn't have any fighter help, and they found, uh, late in the afternoon, found the carrier, hear you, and rolled in on it, and put four bombs in it, which which fatally, mortally wounded it. Uh, that night, the ship had a had a big explosion, and so they abandoned ship. Here you floated the next day, and there's a very famous uh, image of of the whole the, the 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 bow. The flight deck is gone, uh, but the carrier is floating there. So so we realized, okay, the Japanese. I mean, again, the fog of war. Oh my gosh, the Japanese have a carrier. We got to sink it. Well, it it, it, it couldn't operate. It, it, it had already been abandoned. But this is what we think. So uh, during the night, Spruance had moved his forces to the east prudently because the the Japanese, he was afraid, were going to engage him at night, and that would not have been good for him. Also during the night, the Japanese realized we can't win, so they started heading home. So a very long-range mission now to find this this mythical fourth Japanese carrier, which is now sunk. The Japanese had scuttled it. Uh, We came across late in the day a uh, Japanese destroyer, so 25 dive bombers from Enterprise and Hornet rolled in on it. None of them were able to hit it. Uh, but they, uh, and, and one of our aircraft was shot down. And so those guys had now to come back at night. And so the question was asked, you know, how, how are you guys, are you guys, you know, any experience at night? And the answer is most of our guys have never landed an airplane on a ship at night. And so this was their first time. And uh, uh, this was also a case where, where Spruance and Mixture, but led by Spruance because he's the admiral. Turn on the lights, so they turned on the lights for the guys, so they could come back and and have just a, a chance of of, uh, of of getting aboard. And 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 most of them did. a Very famous story about LSO Robin Lindsay, you know that the flight deck is just packed, so he's still waving guys aboard and waves the last guy like on what you and I would consider the one wire, just to just to get him aboard. Um, story mm-hmm. in itself on that. And then on on June sixth there was a uh, Two Japanese cruisers that had collided, the marines of course are are fighting for and i'm not I'm not giving enough credit to the Marine Corps. They fought on the morning of June fourth They tried to attack the Japanese that night from midway, and on June fifth they went out and contributed to the attacks on the two Japanese cruisers so mop up duty and, and those those stories are are not told in the midway narrative i mean it's you know the morning of June fourth is everything, and then it kind of ends, and that's the way the movie was. Uh, actually, I'll, t- I'll take that back. They they did show the afternoon strike. But what the movie showed is one ship, one squadron, Richard Best, who was a hero. Uh, but there was a lot more going on.
0: So in the end of what would be considered the Battle of Midway as they go their separate ways, what's sort of the tally if there is such a thing? I know there was damage on both sides. Clearly, many aircraft shot down.
1: There was about 300 American airplane. I'm sorry, 300 American lives were lost. Okay. Over a hundred airplanes, probably 150 airplanes. We lost the carrier of Yorktown. Uh, Yorktown would have been salvaged, but the Japanese got a submarine in um, among our screen, sank the right. It was yes, being towed out. Sank right? the destroyer Hammond, mm-hmm. and and Yorktown rolled over and sank the, the next morning, which is also. And I've got one of my uh, Lloyd Childers, who was a Yorktown uh, VT uh, rear gunner. Uh, he was picked up by the destroyer Balch, and so he witnessed it. And and well, I wrote historic fiction, but that happened, and and much of the dialogue is is on, on the record. The Japanese though lost four frontline carriers, a Kagi, Kaga, Soryu, and Hiryu. They lost the, the, one of their cruisers, one heavily damaged. They could never recover from this. So 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 what happened? You and I know when when you're in a fight. Let's say you find yourself defensive, and you don't go from defensive to offensive. You go to neutral. Defensive, neutral, then offensive. At Midway, the Americans were able to go neutral with the Japanese. And uh, two months later, the Americans uh, led the initiative at Guadalcanal. And and there was carnage in, in the Solomon Islands throughout the rest of 1942. Two great big carrier battles all the, the, the surface of the gunfire action. The Japanese brought the, you know, they, they, there was severe fighting on both sides and the Japanese gave good account of themselves. But after that, they did not have the arsenal of democracy. And it was just an avalanche of steel that the United States could build and sent into the Pacific that doomed them.
0: Would you, would you say then the Battle of Midway was the turning point?
1: I, you know, um, Ed Beakley, who has a, a great site uh, called Remembered Sky, uh, and and I'm going to quote here. He says Midway is the day from which all days followed. So Midway was was <laughs> the day that that proved to the world, even to the the, the most staid battleship guy. Look, these airplanes really can uh, change the course of warfare so much so that that battleship over there, we're just going to use it for shore bombardment. Um, it. It was a, a turning point. I you know a case can be made and and that the Solomons campaign was, was really the turning point. We started started marching there because again the Japanese met us at the Solomons and it was you know months of, of hard fighting. Uh, but at Midway, neutral, we didn't have to worry. And so this gets into the world aspect of Midway. And I'm going to credit James Flushinger, my friend, my late friend George Walsh, because we won at Midway we were then able to land forces at north africa in 1942 and and not concentrate on the pacific had we lost we would have won the pacific war but we would have had to concentrate our resources on japan who had attacked us and the american public is is angry with um because we were able to attack north africa and put pressure on germany that took pressure off russia so they were able to eventually prevail and you can see that that uh, you know Maybe had we lost, we would not have been at uh, Midway, I'm sorry, at Normandy on June 6, 1944. And if we weren't, could not Soviet Russia just kept moving across all of Germany and the low countries? And, and the answer is they could have, because we weren't there to meet them. So, so Midway gets uh, um, you know, short shrift from, uh, from world historians about its importance.
0: Well, that's why we're spending a little time on it. So... Uh, But yeah, like you said, in June of 42, boy, we were a long ways from there were still three more years of slugging it out, fighting, including uh, up at Iwo Jima. Now, I had a tour in Japan, and I was fortunate to be able to go to Iwo Jima. Uh, They now call it Iwo To, and it's still Japanese. Um, But there was a lot of memorials there and a lot of remnants of the of the battle. Of course that was a you know very vicious hand to hand battle. I know you haven't been to Midway either but do you know I mean what's there today? I assume there are some monuments to uh the, to the fighting but what's on Midway? It's just obviously not a clipper on, stop. On anymore. Midway
1: is uh it's run by the the US Fish and Wildlife Service. I think it's it's full of albatrosses and and frigate birds. Uh there is a runway on Sand Island and but in 1942 the Marines took off from Eastern Island. That was their airfield and sand island which is larger of the two it had the navy seaplane base and there was plenty of, of marine infantry and anti aircraft but but now there's a runway there and uh sleepy place there is a monument to the battle um it it's it's uh the thing about midway you you can't really go there you you can't you know there's just you know thousands of miles of trackless sea um you can go to Gettysburg, you can go to Antietam and other battlefields here in the United States. You can go to Normandy. Uh, it, so it, it's easy for those battles to get a lot of public interest because you can actually go there and and, and touch it. Uh, mm. Midway is, is water and air.
0: Well, it clearly has made a difference in history. And again, maybe it's not as well known, but there is an airport. Like, as I said, at the top, there is a carrier, which we've done a show on. Uh, it's here in San Diego as a museum now, just barely missed the war. And uh, of course, the island itself is still there. So very interesting stuff, Hoser. I know we've been at it a while. I've got some listener questions. Sure. Are you uh, willing? Okay. And some of these we may have already covered, but, uh, we can always just give them a quick answer. Uh, Jared wants to know, wasn't the SBD outdated by the time the battle started in 1942? And I think we did cover I, it, that one.
1: It, it, we had nothing newer. Um, you know, two years later, the SB2C Helldiver came on the scene, maybe the end of 1943. And that was not a pilot's aircraft. Uh, that was, uh, Son of a b, second class. I mean, it was it was a difficult, unforgiving airplane to fly. <laughs> it was bigger and carried more, but uh, okay. I, I wouldn't necessarily say it was better. But it did have range and, and payload. But the, 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 the Dauntless in nineteen forty two, yeah, that, that was a, that was a great airplane. And and I'm going to add this. I'll I'll add this that in World War II, the United States Navy Dauntlesses sank more tonnage than surface ships. Or submarines, and I, should, I oh, shouldn't wow. say Dauntless. I should say dive bombers. Forgive me, but the, the Dauntless and the Hell Diver sank more than than surface ships or submarines.
0: So which one was it? And forgive me, I can't keep it all straight. That was the torpedo, the, the TBD uh, Devastator. Devastator, and uh, okay. that
1: was that was it for for the TBD. Uh, never never used again. Okay. Another airplane that the Marines used at Midway is the uh, the Balti Vindicator after Midway, and and the Buffalo, Brewster Buffalo fighter, they weren't used anymore in World War II after Midway.
0: All right, Joe Kunzler asks, how did these pilots in their Dauntlesses and presumably the other aircraft with no radar navigation find their way to the Japanese fleet? And so this was what I was wondering earlier, but I knew knew Joe was going to ask it. So they were, like you said, they were given a bearing. We think they're here. And I guess one question I have, Hoser, is, why didn't the fleets just close on each other? I mean, was there obviously concern for if we can reach them, they can reach us? So it's yes. Kind of two and, questions. and there's
1: so. Um, Admiral Fletcher on Yorktown was reticent to put his ships where Admiral Nimitz told him to put them. Uh, we, we knew within five miles and five minutes because of the great work of Blayton and Roper where they were. Now, when when you get someone in Makalapa Hill saying they're going to be here at this time, what? Yep. I don't know because I'm the one that's out there in, in the fleet. So Fletcher kept his ships away. Fletcher sent a search that morning from Yorktown, which which made Yorktown's deck not ready for offensive action, which Nimitz told him not to do. He didn't want carrier airplanes to be seen by the Japanese. He just wanted the PBYS from Midway to find them. So they did, and they they Morse code. You know, here they are, and and our guys uh, attacked them. The uh, the first part of your question is how do the guys in the SBD find it? Well, um, there is a tray underneath the, the the instrument panel of the SBD, and on that tray, you pull it out, and you've got a, a plexiglass maneuvering board that we're familiar with, which is really a compass rose, and you know you're in the middle. And uh, okay, so and, and imagine flying the airplane, you're pulling this out, kind of kind of by your chest here. You got a grease pencil in your hand. Okay, I'm here two four zero. And you figure, okay, there's a, the the seas. I'm making about, oh, I don't know, uh, uh, you know, two miles a minute, maybe three miles a minute if I'm lucky. And and you you time an hour and a half, and you're looking at your fuel, and you're looking for you know where are they? And then let's say you get into battle, and now you're who knows where you are. Now you have to find your way home, and you just kind of say, okay, I guess I'll just fly the reciprocal zero six zero and and to find my way. They did have a a radio means. Uh, to to home in on their ships but that's it that's how they did it
0: otherwise eyeballs and i think you said earlier binoculars (laughs) crazy john clark wants to know what were the top lessons learned by the u.s in the pacific after the analysis of this battle
1: well um we're we're not gonna um we're not gonna use a tbd anymore uh (laughs) that's a good question it's a difficult question i think that uh Yes, the, the first one to, to find the enemy is, is going to win. Uh, we, we had some tough times in the South uh, Pacific at, at the Battle of Eastern Solomons and especially the Battle of Santa Cruz, where a Hornet was torpedoed and, and subsequently scuttled. Uh, the, the learning did not end on on June fourth, fifth, or sixth. You get new people in, in new ships, and and oftentimes you have to you have to learn the the same old lessons. I think that. Uh, yeah. I, I do think that a lesson learned was uh, from Jimmy Thatch and his beam defense maneuver, which was taught throughout the fleet then to uh, to great effect. And of course, we got the Hellcat fighter. Uh, they realized after Midway we need more fighters, more fighters on in in our in our air groups. Uh, as as you may know, they used to store spare fighters in the overhead in the hangar bay, and they bring them down, put the wings on them, and put oil in the engine, and and off they went.
0: Crazy. Scott Manning wants to know if we can talk about the B26 Marauder's yeah. role at Midway. I don't remember reading about that, but maybe I missed it. Yeah, it and
1: it's a uh, a uh, couple pages in in my novel. This is uh, the, the very famous uh, flight down to Kagi's flight deck by First Lieutenant uh, Murray. Um the, the Air Force, excuse me, the Army Air Force, uh they had rigged torpedoes to their B26s. Now the B26 looks a lot like a B25 Mitchell that attacked Japan the Doolittle Raid. Uh, the B-26 has a single tail, but uh, pilot, co-pilot, bombardier, gunners, radio, you know, the standard you know, five or six guys in the aircraft. So four of these airplanes attack the Japanese with B-17s from Midway, with the uh, the Dauntlesses and Vindicators flown by the Marines at Midway, with the, the five or, or six uh, Avengers flown by the Navy from Midway two of the b26s were, were shot down although they did shoot down a japanese zero but one of the gunners got one and uh but one just kept going in dropped the torpedo and then ended up flying down the length of akagi's deck and and uh eyewitnesses from mitsuo fushida who was there on the bridge uh there, there's a, there's artwork of this that i've seen um yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, they, they had nowhere else to go to just, you know, fly right down their throat uh, with with a gunner in the nose and the glass nose of this thing, you know, with a with a 30 cow, you know, shooting at sailors on the deck and two Japanese sailors lost their lives in that attack. I mean, well, it's yeah, it just they just, you know, talk, you know, courage to go into the teeth of that that enemy fire.
0: Well, that was on display readily, I would say, at the Battle of Midway Courage. All right. George Bravo wants to know, how close did the U.S. Navy get to losing the Battle of Midway?
1: You know, a case can be made if McCluskey hadn't seen uh, that uh, destroyer down there. He, he, he was going to go back. He was going to you know, go as far as he absolutely could stretch it. Then he would have gone back instead of putting 30 aircraft in the water. The Japanese right. knew where the Americans were and the Japanese would have attacked. Uh, And and that would have changed the course of of that battle. The here you in in the afternoon with just dive bombers was able to uh, get through Yorktown's fighters who shot down a lot of dive bombers. But uh, Yorktown suffered a couple of hits, blew out her boilers, snuffed her boilers. So she's dead in the water. You know, you see the, the famous picture of black smoke. And that's, you know, from her from her engineering spaces. But within an hour and a half, they were able to get steam up. And so she starts, you know, moving out and then the Japanese came at her again. And this is the torpedo attack with uh, with the uh, led by Lieutenant Tomanaga with uh, with Mariyama, one of the one of the Japanese that I concentrate in my book. He was in that attack also. So pretty close when, when you when you think about it. I mean, the Japanese were outstanding naval aviators and, and knew how to use their aircraft. Mm.
0: All right, last listener question, and this is a little off topic, but you, having written your book, Fight, Fight, can probably answer this one. Let's ponder, says John F., what a modern Battle of Midway might look like. And of course, I don't think anyone's going to battle for that little island, but move what? A couple thousand miles west, and you might have something like this, huh?
1: I, I think that uh, it's, a, it's a great question. At um, uh, tremendous distances, obviously, what do you have to do? You have to be able to navigate, communicate, and and then target satellites. Don't expect them. Uh, the use of radio, no. Uh, you know we're, we're going to be dropping beanbags from Seahawk helicopters from on, on on one deck to another, and there's and uh, you know visual you know semaphore you know blinking light when you can get away with it. Um, but we're not gonna we're not gonna have you know all the, the the GPS stuff that we think we have now who's going to be able to fight better in that environment a satellite denied environment i, yeah. I and so that's that's the question that that has to be asked but there there's gray zone stuff that's going to come into play there there is allies uh it's going to be the entire western pacific is going to be the theater
0: it's tempting to think that we would be so much more advanced than we were 79 years ago with again, data link and radios and satellite and everything else. But like you said, if the balloon really goes up and let's all hope it doesn't, but if it does, of course, a lot of that could be denied. It could go right back to where you were, Uh, go on a distance uh, on a, on a bearing, I should say Uh, Mm -hmm. look, look for the enemy and engage them. Now the weapons will be different. The speeds will definitely be different, but uh, let's, let's hope we never have to, uh, answer John's question. Yes. All right, Hoser. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, just real quick back to silver waterfall. Why did you write that? What was, what was kind of your motivation? And it's a little different than what you've written before, isn't it?
1: Yes. And, um, it's a book that that I'm, I'm glad I wrote it when I did after I'd learned from writing the the first three about, you know, you know, being a better craftsman, but, uh, I was a, a squadron XOCO and, and uh, I, I knew that 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 naval history was a shortfall among all of us and uh so i would i would go to the squadron on and i'd see a sailor and i'd say hey i'll i'll buy your your root beer if you can tell me uh you know who, who said don't give up the ship fight her till she sinks or or what what ship was uh, john paul jones on when he did battle with the hms serapis and and uh Sometimes they knew, oftentimes not. And I say, okay, well, who's your division officer? And Lieutenant Smith. Okay, well, find Lieutenant Smith. And you ask him that question. And he come to me with the answer. And it was fun, you know, and it kind of, you know, get the guys thinking about history, but we were on enterprise. We're going across the Atlantic on deployment. And so I, I, uh, uh, I put together a PowerPoint brief about the battle of Midway. And I just wanted to talk to the ready room, uh, about the things we talked about today and, but you know, thinking about our heritage. So, was so I, I called the guys into the ready room. They had to be there. And uh, we uh, I, I went over this in PowerPoint form. And uh, I said, are there any questions? And th- th- there were no questions because they all wanted to go to mid-rats. And <laughs> so I said, okay, no one leaves till I get three questions, which I quickly got. And uh, so everyone uh, got out of there in, in time for mid-rats. But, uh, but I, I heard got some good reviews, like, you know, grudgingly. Yeah, you know, Skipper, I guess that was all right. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's, it's been, um, it's something that, that, uh, I like talking about obviously, and, uh, just yeah. wanted to write this book as a tribute to those guys for what they did. We should never forget what those guys did for them. Well,
0: Well, I mean, I don't think we barely even touched on it today. And again, there's no possible way to relive the fear they must've had and the uncertainty of what the end would be. But of course we know that today. And so we're all better for their sacrifices, but. Good stuff hoser all right anything else what what did I not ask you uh, about the Battle of Midway that I should before we wrap up
1: i I think uh yeah we we've covered a lot and uh yeah it's been it's been a, a great show I, I think we've we've covered quite a bit
0: all right well before we go and I'll let you go in a moment uh can you remind everyone where they can find you in your books You did say your website earlier if you could say it again and where can we follow you on social media if we'd like
1: Kevin Miller author dot com. And, and I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And here's the Silver Waterfall, which you should buy at the fighter pilot podcast website and <laughs> it ha- which has a link to it. And uh, that that's that's the place that, that all of your listeners should, should go first. But you can find it on Amazon. Right. You can uh, you can go to your local independent bookstore and ask for it by name and, th- and they'll get it for you. They have a mechanism to do that.
0: Yeah. Well, I appreciate the plug, Hoser. I think if we sell your book on Amazon, it doesn't cost you anything more. I think Amazon gives us like 13 cents, uh, so but it adds up. So I do appreciate it.
1: You bet. Tim. All right.
0: Well, this has been a lot of fun. We're going to transition then to our wrap up. I just want to remind everyone that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Hoser, thanks for coming back again. You are our first two-time guest on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, sir.
1: Thanks for having me, Jello. I had, had fun.
0: Well, that'll do it for this week. We'll see you back here in 10 days for a show on how NASA is involved in military aviation. You won't want to miss it. We'll see you then. Take care. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line 877-MACH-101 that's 877-622-4101 be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website fighterpilotpodcast.com for exclusive content and to help support the show check out our Patreon
1: page thanks for listening
0: To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.